This is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform once again, and I am with Dr. Susan Kleiner. For this episode, we've got a lot to uncover. So Susan, why don't you say hi and then let everyone know how people could reach you. Hello, everybody. Great to be back. I can be found at uh, drskleiner.com at my website. I'm also on Facebook at Dr. Susan Kleiner. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Power Eat. It's not, you know, I'm not that active, but I'm on there. Um, And then you can find my book, The New Power Eating, The Good Mood Diet, and a whole host of other books. So fun to be here. Most of those are easily accessible through Amazon. I don't know where you sit on the the judgment of Amazon because they're so close to you. But, you know, it's so amazing to me that people have these really strong opinions about it. Um, Yet we all get like three prime packages every single day. You know, (laughs) it's just so easy. You know, um, so if you don't know me, I'm Paul from Me to Perform. Like I said in the beginning, you can visit me at www.eatperform.com. Most people that find us typically find us through Facebook. We do have Instagram. We're active on on both of those things. And um, yeah, so if you're looking for a nutrition plan that is highly personalized, like we talked about last week's podcast. Susan would be a great option if you're looking for something that's maybe a little bit more budget friendly. You're kind of over the extreme dieting. I actually did a series on extreme diets, and it's it's kind of interesting. You know, the um, I think that you know there's a lot of diets that are in the ether. It feels like you can't go to the grocery store without having 16 magazine that all have keto on the front cover, right? Um, and you know, they all have magic keto and, and at the end of the day, hint, hint, (laughs) specifics do matter. Right. Um, so kind of keep that in mind. All right. So I had to cough there. So what we're going to talk about today are some of the things related to custom or maybe custom meals and things of this nature that are starting to come up because there's lots of testing that our athletes are being exposed to. Like even in my case where, you know, I'm probably dealing with a little bit more gen pop. Actually, it's sort of funny because we were just talking about prime and literally the little prime truck. It hurt you. (laughs) Um, But even in the case of my athletes, there's a lot of stuff that's, that's getting out there. So we wanted to kind of, you know, talk about the good, the bad, right? And most of it, you know, like most of our podcasts, there's going to be a lot of gray area that we kind of cover, right? So what is the first one that you want to start with? Because I think the best one to really kind of unpack is this idea that you were bringing up earlier about genetic food matching, right? So can you walk through some of the things that, that you know, because, you know, there's a lot of over-promising and under-delivering in that world. So there's this area, it's a real field, uh, it's a real science, people getting real degrees, in, a, in an area called nutritional genomics. And 
just like you do 23andMe or any of this other testing where they may identify disease-associated factors or mistakes uh, in the translation of your genetic code, um, the, there are uh, genes uh, and factors on genes and, and a study of of how, how our genes are interacting with the environment inside and outside um, and how that impacts um, or interacts with the food that we eat. And so um, there is some really good data. For instance, it's a proven uh, evidence-based um, recommendations. You can be tested to see if you, how you respond to caffeine. And through a genetic test, uh, the, the healthcare practitioner or the lab can tell you that you either don't respond much to caffeine, that you're an average responder, or that you're a very high responder, meaning that you metabolize it very slowly and it hangs around and it's very powerful in you. Um, the funny thing is, I would say, that almost every client I have ever seen in 30 years could tell me that without a genetic test. They know <laughs> how they respond to caffeine. Um, uh, you know, what it does for me is if someone isn't sure if that test was done, I could say to them, you know, this wouldn't be a good idea for you. Let's not add caffeine to your pre-exercise protocol. Um, but the testing in general is, you know, it goes everything from saying, oh, you have this uh, protein-based factor that we, that you're, you're producing uh, in your, uh, through your, the translation of your genetic code, and that corresponds with that you shouldn't eat pears. And that kind of stuff isn't real. Now the data point from your bloodstream or your genetic material is true, but there is no evidence that they have to corroborate the action that they're telling you to take. That's not across the board. There are clearly certain, as I said, syndromes, diseases, where we know and we can identify life-saving things in, a, in an infant. But in a, but in a person who has lived a lifetime, many of, of the recommendations are not evidence-based. So this is where gurus come in and they, they wedge, right, between a scientific approach and, and what they do right? Because they will take what you just said and say, yeah, that part where she said, you know, um, there's some interpretation. Well, here's the interpretation. It's like, if you hear someone say definitively, this is the thing, and they don't ever question, that's usually not very scientific, right? If you look at the basics for the scientific method, it's that you put up whatever it is that you have 
and you put it out there for exposure and then you get feedback from that, right? So you will rarely ever, if ever, hear of someone that's really super knowledgeable say, this I know for fact, you are you know, allergic to pears, right? Um, and then what, furthermore, right? Because this happened a lot with the paleo movement. The paleo movement was big with this, right? Where, um, and you're still seeing this. I, I still can't believe to this day, some of the blood work that people are paying that they could literally go to LabCorp and get for an $89.95. You know, they're going to these Hollywood doctors and they're getting these blood panels run for $1,500. Price of entry is $1,500. Yeah. And, and so what ends up happening is, is they tell you, well, stop eating pears. And so you stop eating pears. And there might be a little bit of a placebo effect. And so you're like, man, those, not eating those pears, that made all the difference. It's like, well, okay. But, you know, mentally, you kind of prepared yourself for success there. I was actually listening to uh, an interview with the the person that runs 23andMe, and they were pretty honest about kind of the early days of 23andMe that that um, you know some of the data you know maybe you know, I, I I don't want to say it wrong, but but what she was saying is that. Um, now, things that she was absolutely certain of, she's not near as certain They of. made lots of errors. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. a year later, you'd get an email from them that said, actually, that was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and she was pretty honest about that. And so when, you know, she's talking about now, what she's... You know, she has the benefit because she has lots of data from kind of this period where it was a little woohoo, right? And a little guru-esque, right? And now they're a little bit more scientific, a little bit more data-based. That is really what is going to happen with the nutrition side of things. But that is, that is 20 to 25 years away at the earliest. So, so the thing is that there are, as I said, there's a handful of things that we have identified as genetic imperfections um, that, that are critical and we know exactly what they're linked to and, and how it impacts uh, something nutritional because it explains a broken pathway, biochemical pathway. Um, it's a handful. And yet the way that these are being used in practices by people with all kinds of health degrees, including some registered dietitians, and and, and telling the client that, that it is a valuable service to give them highly actionable advice is, is, is misinformation at best and quackery at the worst. And um, fraudulent at the worst. And fraudulent. And I am in the belly button of high technology here in Seattle. And people call me 
all the time. And they want to know, well, why don't you use all these high-tech devices and all these high-tech tests? Why don't you do those? And I said, because it doesn't give me any more information than a really intensive interview with you and, and collection of a history from you. That gives me more data and better data than because it's what you're doing and how you're responding now. Remember, I also have a highly motivated population and nobody's lying when they get to my office. Um, and that is not the case everywhere when people feel that they have to go in and do something that it's not really their own motivation to be in a, in a nutrition setting. So, but the, but the big thing is to know that so much of the whiz-bang gadgets and tests right now are not giving any more value to your um, customized program that a good practitioner couldn't gather and, and what you're paying for is not the expertise of the practitioner. You're paying for technology that is not an added value. Well, I remember one of the articles that you sent me, I believe, I believe it was you, um, related to biohacking in Silicon Valley. Oh, right. And uh, the the title of of the article was from a registered dietitian and what she said was your biohacking is an eating disorder right and and what i think is happening right now is we're getting a little too cute right um and so that i'll segue from that into what we're going to talk about with food sensitivity tests right because you know with kind of the paleo movement, it's kind of interesting because when, when I first started getting fit, you know, intermittent fasting um, had kind of come on the back end of, of what was low carb, right? And so some of the bad things that, that I had done that really, you know, kind of failed me in that time period, you know, was, was the low carb and then, then some intermittent fasting stuff. And then right as I started to figure it out, Paleo became a thing, right? And because of that, a lot of people were exposed to food sensitivity. And you get kind of this false positive, right? Related to, um, okay, so you're, you, you have been eating a lot of McDonald's. Maybe you just started to CrossFit, right? Um, you've reduced your alcohol intake or moderated it because now you're drinking skinny margaritas as opposed to the six pack of beer that you were doing. And all of a sudden it sets up this narrative, right? So this is the thing. So Susan and I have always had a weird interaction um, related to my criticism of just eat real food, right? Because I think it always confuses Susan when I say this, right? But my criticism of just eating real food is not that you shouldn't just eat real food. It's that just eating real food is a lot less food typically. Right. And so that's what happened with paleo, right? Is that you had 
these scenarios where people were eating kind of bad and then they started eating kind of good and then they're like game changer right. right and then what ended up happening and this is what we see at eat before and probably much more than you would see um, with what you do related to performance nutrition but people would hit their head against the wall right now part of the reason why they hit their head against the paleo wall was because they started bacon wrapping everything right um and 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 the reason why they started bacon wrapping everything i know it's kind of funny for me to say that um but because when you just eat chicken and kale eventually you require a few more calories and since bacon is kind of the coolest thing on the list you sort of overdo bacon right this is the problem with lists of foods i'm not necessarily against a list of food but one of the best things i always heard and he may have stole it from you or you may have stole it from someone else but the mike t nelson kind of brought the idea of a mostly do right and a sometimes don't list and I've always thought that that was brilliant to a different level, right? And that to me is what paleo should be. But at the end of the day, whether it's paleo, whether it's keto, whatever it is, the specifics will always matter, right? And one of the awesome things about New Power Eating and, and, and Susan's book is that she's really talking about good foods and good amounts, right? And I think that that's the, the part that I may have not always explained to you about my criticism of just eat real food because you're a just eat real food in good amounts person, mm-hmm. right? Whereas most of the people that are saying just eat real food are really trying to get people to eat a lot less mm-hmm. and they try to oversimplify things that's actually kind of complex, right? Because if you are an aging athlete and things of this nature, and we can maybe cover that a little bit towards the end, amounts of food and specifically cycling in amounts where you're holding on to muscle and potentially building muscle matter a lot, right? And that's where your ketogenic dieting, your intermittent fasting dieting, and all these things, when you look at it realistically, what did they do? They just took out all the stuff with calories, right? right? And so if, like, for instance, ketogenic dieting, which, you know, people would be surprised to know I don't totally hate. One of the reasons why I don't totally hate it is because when you're eating kind of fatty meats and things of this nature, you know, protein is highly thermogenic and you're not going to necessarily get hungry. My criticism would be that hunger is actually of some value to you and you would like it to come back, right? And so um, talk to me about food sensitivity tests because truthfully, people are going to their chiropractor and they're taking that as gospel or they're getting it from some gal um, I'm trying to remember the, the, I think I did like a, um, a poke test, right? The allergy testing. And these things, these things, I, you know, I, I know now, but I did not know then is that 
I mean, the one that I took was definitely bogus, right? Um, and, and most people, the conditions of the test can change. Um, the, the, the amount of just taking one test and making these broad assumptions is a real bad idea, right? So there's, so there's a, you know, a host of, of complications that makes this all very confusing. So when we were growing up as kids, the, the, the little needle testing um, for like, are you allergic to grasses, different cut types of grasses, uh, dust mites, that sort of thing. Most of that testing is, is today highly regulated and very credible. But even when you go to a, a medical doctor's office and who is a specialist in allergies, they will tell you, well, you're reacting here like you have, you know, they'll, they'll do maybe 20 different samples on your, on usually the front of your, your forearm. And you may react to half a dozen of those. And as they go and tell you what each of those are, you say, well, I don't know. I either eat that all the time or if it's a food sensitivity or I'm out on grass all the time, I play soccer, I never have an allergy. And so they will say to you, this doesn't mean that you're going to react. It means you're reacting to this test at this site, but it doesn't mean you're going to have a full-blown immunological reaction. So that's, that's a credible physician's office, number one, for that kind of testing. And the only way we can know 100% that you have ever had an immune, a truly immunological response is if you're testing for antibodies in your blood. And there are those kinds of tests and those are much more expensive. Now, as far as food sensitivity testing in particular, it is um, different labs use different methodologies. There's different techniques. Every allergist or really good physician that, or, or lab expert, in fact, that I have ever spoken with has said, these tests are not really exact. And so it's very smart if you have any kind of testing to request that your samples be sent to three different labs to see the results of three different labs. They may be all different or they may all align. And if they align, then you probably know you've got some good data. But in between all of that, that it's a very still flawed science. Yet, as you're saying, people will tell you with absolute certainty that you have a food sensitivity to X, Y, or Z, and they know what's best when probably the person who ran the test couldn't have told you with that kind of certainty because they understand the limits of the test. Yeah. Um, and so, so you, what you're saying is, is that Becky from the gym might be wrong? <laughs> yeah, so, and these are expensive. Um, it is... It is, in a way, what I like to do until I'm sort of at a crossroads, I like to do elimination diets. 
And, and what an, a true elimination diet does is, is it eliminates, you say, I think, you know, I've kept track. First, you keep track and you look at your symptoms and you look at your diet in minutia. And, and you see any associations that there may be. There may be 10 different foods where there are questions. And then you say, okay, I am going to eliminate all of those foods from my diet for like a month. And then, and you get your immune system to quiet down. Then you add them back one at a time for a period of a week, one at a time. And if you get no response, then you know that one's not a problem. Then you add the next one back. And this may take you three months. And you may identify one and you go, aha, this is it. And so you don't have to test. I mean, but part, part of the, so I'll just give you, I'll, I'll just take the other side because I, I think, I think that an important thing to mention, right, in what you're talking about is that if you take out dairy, right, and your goal is to lose, you know, some weight, guess what? You just took out like maybe 500 calories out of your diet. So right. therefore you're losing weight. That's not what Susan's talking about. What Susan's talking about is how your body reacts to the food, right? So if you're doing it appropriately, what you should be doing is taking away a food, but replacing the calories, right? If you're well, going to do it right. Loss, weight, gain thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, this is the thing that drives me crazy about all this discussion about inflammation. It's not that you want to be inflamed, right? But your body's natural response to healing is to inflame you. What's happening is, is that there's this, this guru-itis of inflammation, and they're confusing people with inflammation compared to chronic inflammation, right? And so when we talk about chronic inflammation, probably the biggest issue is going to be overconsumption, right? And then, of course, there's going to be a little bit of overconsumption of foods that you react negative to. But ultimately, when we're talking about you holding on to fat and body fat and things of this nature, we're really talking more about overconsumption than how you react to tomatoes, right? Right. Well, and, and, and pretty much everyone will end up, everyone will end up with an inflammatory gut reaction from a high intake of ultra processed foods. You're not unusual. It's not magical that you feel better when you remove those. Yeah. <laughs> when you eat less McDonald's, right? You start to, and you mix in a salad, you, you start to feel better. You know, you haven't, you haven't solved the world's problems. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and then you add in some of those whole grains. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. <laughs> that said, enough said. Here come, here come the Facebook comments with the grain lady again. Uh. It's just so funny, though, because, you know, a lot of each performers, because of your influence, and I've talked about it, so we don't need to go into it too much. Um, but, you know, I started to add in more just because 
unconsciously I had and many formers are adding and everybody's talking about how positive it is right and so I think when we're talking about you know kind of getting back to kind of food sensitivities and, and you brought up a great point related to elimination diets um, is that make sure that your calories aren't being drastically reduced and that you then are really you know, like so I wrote an article about this a long time ago and you know what I was talking about was the um, commercials where, you know, oh, you will die and you could possibly get blindness and things like that, but possible weight loss, right? right. I think what happens for a lot of people. Wait, don't, happens, forget, don't forget the, the leaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but like, but like, you know, and, and, and no, I'm not being critical of vegan and vegetarian. My daughter just walks upstairs. She's a vegetarian. Like, I um, fully support her lifestyle, right? But her lifestyle is a lifestyle. She chose vegetarianism because it's important to her. Many people choose vegan and vegetarianism because they're secretly looking for the side effect to lose weight, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you're over-consuming, and you now consume more vegetables and less processed food, you're probably going to lose weight. It doesn't really matter related to vegan and vegetarianism. And then if it becomes a, a real big part of who you are, then that's great. But at the end of the day, don't look at something that actually might take away from your life, like a medication as an example, that might have effects that you cannot, you know, envision because you want the side effects of weight loss, right? That's so, all I'm saying. So, yeah, so, so just to sort of a, a side note to all of that, when many diets that become popular have benefits to them, they're not magic, but, but if it gets you to a healthier place, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a good direction to go in. So as you're saying, many people may approach a vegetarian diet as their weight loss strategy, that every vegetarian they know is slim. You should know that they're not all slim um, or, or they're fit. Um, and, and they think that's a good weight loss strategy. And so they go that way. Um, the fact is, however you end up eating more plant foods in your diet, um, that's a good thing. Just like um, years ago, Dr. Barry Sears wrote a book called The Zone Diet. And athletes, it, it was a sports nutrition strategy. And um, athletes who were following, before he wrote the book, who were following his plan went from, you know, average, you know, average high level performance to really breaking records. Why? Because there was a fad amongst athletes at that time to eat very high carb and they weren't taking in enough protein. They had really low, like they were eating 80% carbohydrate diets and not nearly enough fat and protein. And they started to follow the zone diet, which was a 40-30-30 plan, 40% carb, 30% fat, 30% protein. And, and it was transformational. 
Well, yeah, because they were finally eating enough protein and fat, the, the other nutrients that they really needed for high performance. It wasn't magical. It just finally got them to be eating what they needed. He went on to write this book and make all kinds of wild claims, like it was going to cure cancer. So he got very carried away with himself, and then people pick up the book for reasons well beyond what that diet is ever going to do for them. Yet the initial outcome of following that diet was a good response, which is what you're saying, but don't attribute it to something that it's not. Well, you can sell more books sure. as a guru than you can as someone just kind of putting things in a scientific way. Exactly. There's many people that, that you know, kind of don't get that basic idea. You know, for the longest time, you know, people would talk to me about the zone. I'm like, why are we talking about a, a, a diet from 1972? Right. right? Um, and, and, oh, by the way, when was the last time you heard of someone bulking with the zone? Right. right? It doesn't happen, right? It's, it's basically a hypocaloric way of eating for most people that is, like you said, more specific to um, protein. So um, this is a little bit of a stretch for this podcast, and I'm going to try and keep it short because we've already gone a little bit long. But I did want to talk a little bit about my experience with testosterone replacement because that's a little bit of, um, like I said, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it's not that big of a stretch because um, I, well, I did a podcast. This was um, probably six months ago. And this was when we first started doing Sundays with Susan and one of my friends in the industry owns a men's clinic, right? And it was really interesting talking to him and, you know, some of the symptoms that, you know, he was talking about, certainly I was aware of these things, right? But there was, there was one thing that I was watching that sort of kind of pushed me over. Um, and, you know, um, I believe it was something from the Joe Rogan podcast, which, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, don't get me going, but, but, um, but this was actually really good from him. And, and, you know, I, I think that there's another thing that you need to know about a lot of your, you know, gurus is they're typically on something, right? Dave Asprey is, 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 you know, not shy about the fact that he's on testosterone, Joe Rogan, not shy about the fact that he's on testosterone plus, right? Um, many of the people right, not that a, you people. see. Right. It's not a single replacement dose. <laughs> yeah, no, right. Exactly. I mean, like Joe Rogan was talking about HGH. And I mean, unless you're a 13-year-old with a pituitary problem, you're going to have to get HGH from Mexico, right? So, so him talking about HGH it's very difficult to get a prescription for that um, in the United States. Not saying that it's impossible, but it's very difficult. It's also very expensive and not within the realm of most people's, you know, you know, budget. Um, but either way, so I get my blood tested. Now I knew that my testosterone level was low 
when I first started exercising, right? And so my hope was that it would increase over time. Um, and it did increase, right? My last, uh, my last uh, free testosterone um, when I was 40 it was, it was right at 10. Um, my, my, um, when I tested my blood work a few weeks ago, it was 12.7. So that's good. My uh, total testosterone, so you really, for those that don't know, you're really more concerned with your free than your total, right? Because your free is what binds with the protein that allows for better muscle and things of this nature. But total also matters because um, your free percentage is kind of factored in with these men's clinics and things of this nature as you're trying to get those levels normal. Well, you know, both of those numbers are on the low range of normal, but you don't want to be on the low range of normal as a physically active person. You want to be on a higher range where you can improve and, and things of this nature. So this is what's been interesting, right? So, uh, you know, <laughs> there are things that I can't believe I'm honest about that I feel just most people are not honest about. And, and, and I feel like me getting my message out there helps. And so that's why I'm going to say this. I apologize to my wife, right? But my wife and I, have always had this amazing attraction to each other physically, right? And um, even though, you know, you know that there's some connection, my understanding, and I don't know a lot about this, but a lot of libido is actually more estrogen-based, right? And so when we look at, you know, why taking testosterone would be favorable for, you know, um, you know, physical attraction um, with your wife, it's really because as your testosterone adjusts, your estrogen has to adjust as a result. And so therefore, you know, um, you, you know, this lack a daisical lackluster type thing. And it, it, it's so amazing to me as a 51 year old man who's seen all these couples get divorced and things of this nature, and me going through this experience, and I'm only five weeks in, but but my whole life has changed, right? <laughs> like 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 um like I said, you know, my attraction to my wife was always high, um, and it was only after this that I realized, wow, you know, like I can go a whole new level. <laughs> and my wife's like, stay away, you know. Um, but um, but the other thing, go ahead. She's going to love this podcast. Yeah, she's going to, trust me. When you sign up for the Paul plan, you kind of know what you're getting, right? <laughs> um, but the, the other part that I didn't know that everybody I talk to is now, oh, yeah, that's well known, um, is the sleep, right? So there's so many of us that have struggled with sleep, and it's well known that the less you sleep, the more negatively it affects testosterone. Also, alcohol consumption is a very, you know, the more you do it, the worse it is for your testosterone, right? So when we're talking to people about fat loss cycles and things of this nature, we used to say, hey, you know, factor it into your plan. And we started to say, no, 
zero, right? Because you know you can immediately affect your testosterone positively, energy levels positively, things of that nature. But the sleep is the interesting one because you know obviously as I'm doing this and talking to people and doing my research, you know, um, apparently the the negative part right where your sleep negatively affects your testosterone once your testosterone's levels start to get to relative normal and i don't even know if mine are relative normal right now right because you know they retest that's the other thing too is i'm talking about me going to a doctor right if you are listening to this and you start taking steroids as a result, we're having two totally different discussions. The discussion I'm having is I have a cold and I'm taking cold medicine, right? Or I'm having a deficiency and I'm addressing that deficiency, similar to what we would be talking about with fish oil or vitamin D or something in this nature. You know, when, when people are talking about testosterone placement, you're talking about fractional type stuff compared to the people that are abusing steroids and things of this nature. So it's really not a similar conversation, but getting back to the sleep thing, I've always had trouble with sleep. A lot of it was just bad habits and things of this nature. Over the course of the last three to five years, I've worked a lot on my sleep and it's gotten a lot better. Nothing ever has affected my sleep as positively as this, right? And I'm not, you know, and, and there's a lot of women that will hear this and go, well, okay, here's a guy talking about testosterone. What do I care? Well, guess what? Testosterone replacement for women is also very common. Now there's other hormonal things that you want to factor in. So you would go to your doctor and talk about that. But women in general have less testosterone than men. Though actually, (laughs) once again, I don't know why I say these things, Susan. But I've always joked that I'm um, on the Eat Reform staff. I'm the person with the least amount of testosterone. Well, it turns out uh, it's actually true right uh, the uh, one of the the gals that actually got tested for testosterone um ended up um actually being higher than my low test so it was sort of funny in that regard and so um testosterone does play a role for women as well obviously your um lo- your levels are are going to be lower than than men's typically um but I would say for aging men and for aging women, it starts to even out, right? And that's just kind of the way that works. So if you're a man from 30 on, you're going to start to um, get some experiences really similar to menopause for women, right? Where, um, you know, it's part of your body's natural process of trying to kill you, right? It's, it's, and so, you know, your job is to fight that at all costs, right? And so for women who are struggling with menopause and things of this nature, some of the things related to testosterone replacement for men actually do apply for women in those situations. And so if you are feeling overly fatigued, if you're feeling depressed, these are some of the things that you might want to have on the list to check, 
right? But to um, make sure that you, you know, when anything having to do with any hormone replacement therapy from thyroid to, to estrogen to testosterone is a, is a serious medical intervention that you must have a conversation with a well-informed physician. Yeah. And so, um, so far it's been great. I've tried to be very open about it. I've written, you know, two or three articles. This is the first time I talked about it on the podcast. Um, but you know, as expected, of course, your workouts are better. Your sleep is better. Your sex life is better, you know? Um, and, and in general, if you want to know my motivations of why I did it, it was really like what Joe Rogan said is that, you know, this is 2020. Why wouldn't I take advantage of something? You know, why would I choose to be miserable? Right. And while I wouldn't necessarily describe the state that I was in as miserable, um, I would say that there were symptoms that were starting to become alarming. Right. And certainly for the last five years, my workouts have been stagnant. Right. Um, so some of the, the things that I'm seeing with the knowledge that I have has sort of accelerated things in a very short period of time. So I'm very interested to see how that works out, you know, but I want everyone to know because I, I brought it up to a friend of mine, right. And he immediately starts telling me about how he's like the most macho guy in the world. I'm like, okay, dude, I realize I touched on a sensitive topic for you, you know, um, but guys are sensitive to it right? Guys are sensitive to, um, to this. And, you know, it's, it's, if, if my natural attraction to my wife, which has always been really super high, was being affected, it just has me thinking about the divorce rates and things of this nature, and just kind of working on overall health. And when we look at a lot of what's going on with this, Really, a lot of the studies are related to longevity of life. And much of what Susan and I, you know, we don't talk about it every time, but a lot of what we're talking about is longevity of life, right? And so, you know, for a person that wants to have activity as a priority in my life forever, this was one of the steps that, that I have. Um, and so far, it's been great. So I wanted to kind of get that out, and I thought that this was a good podcast to do that. All right. We went longer on both of these last week's and this week's than we probably thought, but um, a lot of good information and welcome back to the real world. Though I, I believe, you know, once again, it's like, where in the world is Susan Kleiner? Um, <laughs> so I think you're traveling in March here. In right. The, the first couple of days in March, I'll be back in San Diego to work. And then I'm pretty much back in Seattle for a good while until I head off to Oklahoma City for the Fitness Summit, which is really an awesome event. Is that Oklahoma City or is that in oh, no, Kansas, Kansas City? Kansas yeah. City, sorry. I was yeah. going to tell you, we haven't had this discussion, but I'm thinking of going. Oh, um, you would love it. Yeah, well, to meet you. It's right? the last one. You should yes. come. I, I, I am aware. Final episode. What now? The final episode. Final, the final <laughs> countdown. The Fitness Summit. All right. Great talking to you, Susan, and we'll talk later. Bye, Bye. y'all.